Welcome to another episode of Bakken Bios. I'm your host, Jason Spies. In this episode, we talk to Brian Kalk, North Dakota Public Service Commissioner. This Bakken Bio interview is brought to you by The Crude Life. When you want to make money the crude way, contact The Crude Life. When you have a project that requires a crude approach, then contact The Crude Life. For more information, visit their website at www.thecrudelife.com. And now, back to our Bakken Bio interview. This is the North Dakota Public Service Commissioner, Brian Kalk. Get rid of pain and strife. You decide to take your life and give it away. I got elected in 2008, so I started back in 2009. And the first question I had was, what is the Public Service Commission jurisdiction on? Boom, 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 boom. I think that's the question that, that is the hardest thing for people to understand is, like, we, we regulate pipelines, but only certain size pipelines. We regulate power lines, but only certain size power lines. Size? Size. Okay. And so it, so that's kind of the, the best rule of thumb that I tell people is, let's take a pipeline. If it's a small gathering system pipeline that's going to put in from the, the wellhead uh, to a transmission line, that we have no jurisdiction there whatsoever. But once it becomes a transmission line, based on this, the volume or the, or the, 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 I guess it just be the volume, then we do have jurisdiction on it. So we'd have the intermediate jurisdiction, but if it's a major pipeline like the Keystone Pipeline, the transit several states will share that jurisdiction with, with, the, with the federal government. So it's depending on what size of the project it comes into play for power lines. Um, we need a lot more energy in the western part of North Dakota. I think I've seen numbers of 2,000 megawatts. And so right now the Basin Electric and MDU are trying to build some major power lines. And so the small power lines, the, the co-ops we're building, that's all local jurisdiction. The medium size, 245, 345 KV, those are all public service commission jurisdiction projects that we're involved in. So when you talk about what we're doing in the energy play, we're citing a lot of the transmission pipelines for oil, for natural gas. Um, we're citing a lot of the major transmission lines that are being built right now. There's one in front of the commission that's a 345 KV line, which is a big line, that's going to go from roughly the Beulah area uh, around the bottom of Sakakawea through Williston and finish up in Tioga. Those hearings are coming up. Um, we're also doing a lot of work with the energy generation. So the wind farms, you don't think much about the wind farms in western North Dakota, but there's a lot of wind farm work in eastern North Dakota right now and down in Hedinger there's a wind farm that we're working on. Uh, so we cite energy generation, meaning if it's you know something is going to generate electricity. So wind farm sightings, um, natural gas, there's so much of it out there right now. MDU, Basin Electric, and others are taking natural gas, making these 45 megawatt peaking plants and making electricity out of it. So we did some of those in Watford City and Williston. And then, uh, you know, we're really just anything dealing with transporting the energy, we're, we're definitely involved in it. So I kind of rambling on there a little bit. But the big thing is what we have jurisdiction on is then we're directly involved in the middle of it. We don't have jurisdiction over everything, certainly not. You mentioned the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, a federal project, what uh, would North Dakota's Public Service Commissioner be involved in the Keystone Pipeline, or even maybe some of those ancillary pipelines that come on it? Sure, absolutely. The, uh, the previous Keystone Pipeline went through the eastern part of North Dakota. The Public Service Commission at that time, uh, Kevin Kramer, Susan Leifold, and Tony Clark, did the actual siting here in the micro-siting inside the state. Now, the current Keystone Pipeline is not supposed to go through North Dakota, so we don't really have any direct play in it. But if it did, we would have the play where it touched North Dakota. One of the things that we're watching closely right now is, um, I think it's some number, almost 
I don't want to quote the exact number, but let's say, you know, three quarters of the oil right now is moving by, by rail in North Dakota. And so if the Keystone gets built to the, uh, to the southwest of us, and I hope it does, you'll probably see a lot of transmission lines being built to feed North Dakota oil into that Keystone. So that could take a lot of trucks off the road, open up new markets. Um, so it would definitely be a plus for North Dakota. And I think the, the big thing about pipelines is we've, it's by far the safest way to move a product. I'm sure that your listeners have followed that uh, train accident up in Canada, mm-hmm. and a lot of that came out of a uh, North Dakota area. And, you know, rail is a pretty good way to move things too, but, but pipelines are the safest. With the emergency response plan in place, just the ability to detect things and react to them. So, so I'm hopeful the Keystone gets built. Uh, but I think in the interim, what's happening is we're seeing projects in North Dakota. Uh, Enbridge Pipeline just announced a, I think they call it the Sandpiper Line, that's going to run from roughly the Berthold area all the way across North Dakota down to Clearbrook, Minnesota. So we haven't seen the application on that yet, but that'll definitely be a PSC jurisdictional pipeline. So there's just a lot going on. And our big thing in the commission is we have hearings in the communities most affected, and we want to get people to come to these hearings to tell us what they like about a project, what they don't like about a project, so we can make whatever decisions we have. One of the hearings we had in uh, Williston, uh, one of the landowners came. It was a natural gas to electricity plant. One of the, the adjacent landowners came. He was very concerned about the runoff that might happen because of the plant. Nobody really thought about that issue. Um, he came, said his piece. The company had made some changes. We all were well of it. Now his concerns will be taken care of, we hope. And so, but if he hadn't come to that hearing, I'm not sure that we would have thought of that. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to get the public input to these hearings. And the one thing that the uh, commission has the, uh, the the siting permits, if you will, but we work with other agencies The for wind farms. We, we will hear from the North Dakota Aeronautical Commission. We'll hear from the FAA. We want to hear from the State Historical Society. So uh, in all these projects, we ask for input from the Fish and Wildlife Service, those agencies I talked about. And so if they have concerns, we want to hear about their concerns too. Uh, the State Historical Society has found a lot more artifacts because of all the energy work going out there. So when they go out and do their cultural studies, the companies do, they'll come back with, you know, different cultural sites mm-hmm. and they'll make sure the projects don't go through those areas. But also then those areas then become uh, discovered, if you will. So the State Historical Society has found a lot more that, that about the state's heritage because of the energy boom that maybe you haven't heard much about. The example of the Field Deer Mountains come to mind. Absolutely. That's all I'm picturing as we're talking about No, absolutely. We don't get involved until it gets into a transmission pipeline. So the oil and gas has to do with the drilling and the gathering lines. But I would tell you that we cited a pipeline um, that started northwest of Kildare and then transited down to the Dickinson area. And there was at least a dozen artifacts that the, they found that were old areas where maybe they'd wintered over, uh, maybe some you know different, uh, I don't know what the correct words are, but, but absolutely uh, artifacts dating back to when the early part of the state. So those were marked, they reported the historical society. What's nice about a pipeline is as long as they're aware of it, you can deviate your route around those things because now, there's a time and a place that maybe where you have to, you don't, you're not given much room to, to maneuver. But in most cases with pipelines, I'd say all the cases I've been involved in, if you find something like that, you're going to go around it mm-hmm. because that's the right thing to do. And 
if you've got sensitive habitat areas, uh, like when, when the pipeline, this particular pipeline I'm thinking of, went underneath the Little Missouri River, the company double walled it, they put extra shutoff shut valves in place. So really I, what I've seen from the pipeline companies is that if you ask them to do it, they're going to do it because they're just, they don't, nobody wants product in the ground, period. Right. Uh, natural gas. Um, flaring's obviously an issue here in North Dakota. Talk, address the flaring and then also just the, the natural natural gas industry here in North Dakota. Sure. The, uh, as most of the listeners are aware of, the natural gas is a big byproduct of all the oil play going on. And the uh, when this play first started, the commission was not really involved in any natural gas pipelines at all. The ones that were there were there. But over the last four or five years, we've seen a lot of natural gas pipelines get cited. And what we've had now, I think it's four of them, these major natural gas processing plants that take the wet gas and make it into ethane or butane or pentane. And so there's, I think, I think it's four of them that are in roughly in the Watford City area that are taking this natural gas, making it into different byproducts, and then sending those to different markets. So we're seeing a lot more of the collecting the gas based on these big plants. And so there's four of them that we've cited now. I think there's plans for a couple more for companies like One Oak to do that. So I think as we see more of the market mature of how they can collect the gas, you'll see the processing plants. And I was talking before about the natural gas to electricity. The uh, power companies are looking at, they need to make this, meet this additional demand. You have this gas right there, why not put in natural gas peaking plants? So we're seeing those being built. The uh, natural gas to fertilizer, which we don't really have any direct jurisdiction on, but I've certainly been tracking that as well. So the, the flaring piece of it, um, you know, that's the industrial commission gives them their permits whether they can or can't flare. But in the discussion that, that we've had with the companies, it's all about as soon as they can collect it, they want to get it to a processing plant and then get a market for it. So, you know, I'd, I'd like to think we're closing the gap on it, but I don't know that we are because we're collecting a lot more natural gas, but they're finding a lot more natural gas. Um, DuPont, Dow, other petrochemical companies are investing $20, 30000000000 billion in uh, natural gas infrastructure to uh, import-export gas. Right. Uh, we have a buyer in Japan, uh, Governor Dalrymple brought him to North Dakota to introduce him to some people. And you mentioned wet gas, which is a premium gas versus a dry gas. Uh, what, what do you make of the amount of investment going into the petrochemical industry here in the United States uh, to, in essence, become energy independent, but also, is that the direction that you see them going to kind of curtail some of this flare? You know, I don't know that I'm the best person to answer that question mm -hmm. at that scale, but I will tell you, give you my thoughts on it, is that energy has always been traded worldwide. And so when you look at crude oil, there's a price per barrel the second it comes out of the ground. And go back to the, our discussion about the Keystone Pipeline. If, if we don't get the Keystone built in the U.S., that oil coming out of Canada is going to go to China because there is a market there for it. So when you go back to the natural gas, there's countries around the world want energy. And if they can get liquid natural gas transported to them, they're going to pay for it. And so it, it behooves us in the U.S. to develop our own infrastructure but if people don't do that, the energy developers are going to find a market for it. So um, it, it is staggering, the amount of investment going on. And when I go to these conferences, people really want to know what's going on in North Dakota. But it's so much broader. It's, it's how can we move it, you know, the, the rail facilities that might move the oil. And rail might even move liquid natural gas. So 
you know, I think it's one thing that we really need to be aware of. If we're, if we're really touting, we really want energy security, which I think we do, then we need to be, I think, very, very cognizant of when we're taking U.S. resources and selling them somewhere else overseas. And that's up to the Secretary of State and others to do that. But in North Dakota, I think we've got to have the awareness to get North Dakota companies or companies to come into North Dakota and invest. But our challenge in the state, I think, is that we have, you know, I think we're now up to 700,000 people. It's hard for us to use all this energy. So it's going to go somewhere. And if we can develop the transportation networks to get our, you know, our natural gas to the right places that need it, then I think we're on to something. But sometimes, um, you know, we're all competitors. So we, we, we're not a, and nor do I ever want to be like a communist Russia or China. You know, they can manipulate energy markets. We can't do that, which is good. So you're going to have things like this develop. But I think it's just, uh, there's so much natural gas out there. I think that we're going to have more and more U.S. solutions, and hopefully that's the long term. We don't export energy that we develop at home. Uh, natural gas is mostly about three bucks right now. You know, I saw it five bucks a couple five, weeks ago, okay. and I think it, the the Henry Hub prices move up and down. It could be down. It might be back down about three bucks. Yeah, it's between three and six bucks, whatever. Over in, uh, it's been holding. It's been holding at the the three and a half for okay. a while. Uh, England's thirteen bucks, fifteen bucks, something like that. Do you see a day? Where gas, natural gas, will become universally priced like oil, gold, silver. You know, I think that the uh, the answer probably is yes. If it, it goes back to the the transportation costs, as long as those will offset any difference, then then you can start developing world markets. So you know, crude oil, like we talked about, has a worldwide price. So mm-hmm. once you see natural gas going around the world, you might do that as well. The difference would be, I think, that the Gas is a much different commodity than oil, but I think, you know, potentially, yeah. Even like electricity in the U.S., um, right now in North Dakota, we've got some great electricity rates that we're trying to really keep low. And you've got other states out there that their electricity costs are very, very high. We want to develop these robust transportation or transmission networks to move electricity. You know, if, if, if the eastern part of the region is, is the country is peaking and we can move the electrons down there, you know, and when they don't need them, we can move them back up here. It's good to move electricity back and forth to meet demands regionally. But the minute you start doing that, you might levelize electricity costs around the country. And levelize wouldn't be to bring them down to North Dakota's rates. It'd be to bring North Dakota's rates up to everybody else's. So that's one of those things, electricity, that I'm watching very closely to keep North Dakota's uh, low cost for us and our residents. Uh, you mentioned uh, some safety related to oil in just a second, but um, some of the safety uh, concerns out in the, in the Bakken when it comes to the shipment of this natural resources. You mentioned the, the rail car incident, um, and, and there's quite a bit of investigation going on right now to figure out what caused it, how it happened, etc. Um, what are you hearing from uh, your colleagues or your, your studies or your readings? in terms of uh, safety out there with, uh, with uh, rail cars and uh, trucks to this point, because there's some construction being done, but uh, obviously the safe safety is the main concern for many people out there. Does the right. Public Service Commission get uh, how involved, I guess, with the, uh, with the safety concerns? I know that's more of the EPA and OSHA and those type of uh, regulations, but uh, I know you guys have a, a finger on it. Absolutely. The- where we have direct concerns on safety is the projects that we cite. So, for example, when we would go through the citing process of a, of a crude oil pipeline or a natural gas pipeline, 
one of the questions that I'll always ask is I'd like to see their emergency response plan. So the companies have to have an emergency response plan on, on file that says, okay, if this happens, you know, if there's a spill, here's how we're going to clean it up. Here's how we're going to do this. And one of the things that has developed over time was it's one thing to have a plan on the shelf. It's another thing to actually exercise that plan. And I think that was a lot of the concerns. I know that was a lot of the concerns that I had early is that when I say early, probably three, four years ago, that companies would have a really good plan that didn't have any capability to it because there wasn't skimmers in Western North Dakota or you didn't have the trained firefighters that you might need. So the energy companies kind of together uh, bought some equipment. They have some areas they are storing some things. So they've really, I think, stepped up to the plate trying to get the resources there. But I still have concerns that we make sure we look at every project and everyone's different. When we cite those uh, natural gas processing plants, those are very big uh, concentrations of natural gas in a relatively small area. So we asked the question of what is the blast radius, back to my military days, if, if all heck broke loose and how big could this thing blow? And they had a number for us and we ensured that there was no residences in that area. Um, worked with the local, uh, Jerry Samuelson's his name, you might run across Jerry, mm -hmm. <laughs> he's a good man. But the, uh, you know, worked with him to make sure that, that he knows what's going on, that he actually came to the hearing and to make sure that when you cite it, there's nothing there, but over time, nothing else goes into that area. Mm -hmm. So I think the local county managers, county emergency managers, are probably as key to this thing as ever because we'll always ask the questions in our hearings about safety, but the follow-through over the life of a pipeline or a project to make sure the county doesn't put facilities where they shouldn't be, um, that's part of the... I mean, it's, it's always going to be an issue, and I don't think you can ever walk away from it, and we shouldn't be. Was it Texas that the plant blew up, the natural gas plant, about a month ago? I think it was down. Texas, Florida, whatever it might be. I saw that in the news. And well, I, obviously, that ring was holding there a little bit. And so sure. You'd think that the blast plant, that's where something like that could Absolutely. And we did, that's where the commission, we've really worked hard to push call before you did. You know, use 811-4911 because... So you go through the process, you cite it correctly, you've got all the great emergency response plans in place, and then... Somebody doing a weekend project puts a backhoe through a natural gas line, and you got a big, big, big mess, and people get killed. So it's it's put it in right, it's protected, it's have plans in place, because you have to have plans in place because something is going to happen at some point in time. And the the rail the rail incident, if you will, um, I've been following that really close and kind of get as much reading as you can between the lines. And you know, I, I'm not the service transportation board up there, but it. I think something like that's going to come down to, I think there was a fire up in the cab and the brakes kind of went loose and you're going to find a combination of human error and some other things. But the point is that you have to have plans on the shelf to, to react with that. Mm -hmm. And that's where the, it's it's hard for some counties to have the same robust capabilities as others. You know, take a Burley County or a Cass County, maybe even a Stark County, they have the resources to probably put together pretty good emergency response plans. But in some of these areas where you, you know, I'm from Botano County, a smaller county, but still bigger in, compared to some. These counties that don't have those population centers need to make sure they've got good plans in place. And if they don't, um, work with you know the right state agency or even the industry because you know ultimately the, the the people that own the facility have to have the emergency response plans in place. If it's an Enbridge pipeline, Enbridge has to have the response plans in place. But they've got to share that with the county because when all heck breaks loose. You know, your, your local county sheriff is going to be out there and the fire department's going to take control. So you've got to practice those. And I think, I think wasn't it out in 
was it Dickinson or Kilda? They just practiced one of those. Yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. I just saw that in the news, so I thought, yeah, I thought that was a really good uh, deal because you can learn so much by getting out there and thinking that everybody knows what's going to happen. And I know from my experience back in the emergency response in the Marine Corps, just sometimes who's in charge was was hard to figure out. Mm-hmm. The first person on the scene, are they in charge, or is it the state, or feds, or the fire department? And um, I was involved in some of this when I was over in Cass County with Sheriff Lane. He's a sheriff. He's a buddy of mine, and they really work hard on that because sometimes the paper drills are just as important, or more important, because they 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 point out some of the flaws in some of these. So, but I think going forward as a state, it absolutely we've got to stay focused on having the the emergency response plans in place because we're still a farming and ranching state. And you've got to protect the infrastructure when it's in there. And with so much new building going on, we've really got to make sure that as we do new construction, we don't harm previous construction. Uh, the new refinery coming up in North Dakota, it's the first refinery, I think, in the United States in 30 years. I believe so. The, the diesel only in Dickinson you're talking about? That's the one. Uh, MBU, um, is, their name's attached to it, as well as, uh, I think, some other ones. That goes back to the jurisdiction point. That one is below the siting jurisdiction of the Public Service Commission. So the amount of fuel they're going to process in that is below what we would site. So we have no jurisdiction on the actual siting of the refinery. But I'm sure we'll have jurisdiction on the transmission lines that may bring product into there or out of there. So uh, I think it's a great idea, but it was built such that we won't have any direct jurisdiction on it. Does uh, anybody from the Public Service Commission get invited to those meetings along the, the preliminary planning and just kind of, although you're not involved at the siting, eventually you will be involved when it comes to the pipeline, et cetera. More than likely, yeah. Um, but uh, do they... Do they invite in for briefings, that sort of thing? We, we, they certainly do. You know, we get things in the mail almost, well, every day, yeah. keeping us aware of something and inviting us to come out. It's interesting. Oftentimes, we'll hear about projects long before, we'll hear about projects in the news long before we ever see the applications. And so, and we're always, if we, there's a project we want to, we want to you know, hear more about, all it takes is a phone call. And everybody wants to work together, so I... Uh, you know, we were just, we were invited to the ribbon cutting of the ethanol plant over there. I didn't make it, but and we don't have much anything with ethanol, but people like to know what's going on. The reason I ask is because um, everybody wants to work together. You know, at what point does the information overload happen? To where, you know, you, you got 50 <laughs> organizations emailing you stuff every day. You have to stick to your job, but you also have to be proactive with things that you know are coming down the pipe because you read about them in the paper and everything else. Um, how do you handle know? Well, first off, we got very good staff here. <laughs> I mean, the Public Service Commission has some extraordinary people. We've got folks that have been here for, you know, some as new as, you know, two years, and some have been here almost 40 years. So there's there's some really good people here that, that do a lot of good things. So for the commissioners, I mean, for me, you kind of really keep it, you have your priorities you try to set every every couple weeks. And mm-hmm. you look at, you know, if, if you've got hearings on the on the schedule that we've got a pipeline hearing, priority one, absolutely. And then the commission meets every other Wednesday for our formal meeting, so that kind of carves out Wednesdays. And then once you figure out the things you absolutely have to do, whatever space might be left in there, you look out there to see what might be good to attend. And so, I think so. And then you may get a phone call from somebody asking to come to something and, um, one of the things the commissioners, we all three have our own different portfolios. 
we all work together, of course, and have the same boats, but, you know, my portfolio is on electricity transmission and generation and telephones, and I'm the chair of the commission now, so that's kind of my area. Uh, Commissioner Christman, he's got the, the coal mines, and he's got the weights and measures, Commissioner Fedorchek, uh, rate cases and pipelines, so we all three have equal say on things, but when we look at those things that, that we might want to attend, you know, Randy would be more likely to go to a weights and measures discussion than I would if if, if we need to send somebody or Julie for pipeline siting and me for telephone. So even amongst the three of us sometimes in our planning meetings, we'll say, hey, we all got this invite. Can somebody make it? And we'll try to always get a presence there if somebody asks for us. Uh, oil activity is, you mentioned TMI that went to 2008, so right. 2009. That is kind of the year that people say the starter pistol went off for the oil activity. Can we jump right into the frying <laughs> pan? Uh, no, that's a great way to put it because uh, Tony Clark, who's now FERC commissioner, I asked Tony one day, maybe I've been here about three months, and I said, Sorry, Did you say FERC commissioner? FERC. Oh, I thought you said FERC commissioner. No. The hunting type. I knew he was an Eagle Scout, but I didn't know. Yeah, it's uh, the FERC, the uh, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So Tony got appointed to the FERC oh, over a year ago. So he does at the federal level what uh, what we would do at the state level. So, But I remember the discussion, Tony had been on the commission about 10 years, and I'd been on the commission about three months. And I, I said, Tony, is it always this busy here? And he's like, no, it's not. I mean, it's, you know, it's just, it really, it seemed like not only with the energy play, 2009 was a big year for wind farms as well. We had a lot of wind farms that, that uh, people have a different viewpoints on wind, but the production tax credit was, was out there, and so we saw a lot of wind farm sightings. But that's when we really started seeing a lot of the oil transmission lines being built. And I thought, quite honestly, 2009 and 10 are pretty big years. But then you kind of, I had a sense somewhere in that late 9, early 10, that maybe we kind of were going to level off a little bit. But then all of a sudden, this hydraulic fracturing and the gas play, it seemed like it really hit maturity and their success rate in the wells really just went exponential. And since that point, um, it's been just unbelievable. Um, and what I'm trying to figure out, what we're trying to figure out in the commission is, you know, we've got 44 people that work here, and half of those work with coal mine reclamation and abandoned mines. So the other 20 people are, and half of those work with grain elevators and other things. We've only got about a staff of six, eight people that really do this energy development. So we're trying to figure out what kind of staff needs we're going to have to meet this, is this going to slow down in two years, three years? Are we going to be doing this for 10 years? This last session, we asked for an additional pipeline safety position, which the legislature gave us because we needed it. And so our challenge now, I think, is going to be able to keep the pace that we're able to keep with that balance of, you know, you don't want to rush to site projects. You've got to make sure the historical society is okay with it. Make sure the game of fish is okay with it. Make sure the landowners. So you don't want to be in a situation where you're trying to make decisions under pressure because there's enough pressure out there already, time pressure, I mean. So if you can have the right people dedicating the right work to it, I think we'll be okay. But that's the challenge is that everybody wants these things built immediately. I got a question and for you. So you got to find a balance. About a North Dakota challenge. Um, Sean Kessel? Sure. Of the I know Sean. Yeah. Uh, he made an interesting comment to me in an interview, which was uh, increasing government size in a red state like North Dakota. It's very hard. It's, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult. Uh, you, you, you're adding people. Uh, out of all the commissions out there, the Public Service Commission probably has the best argument. 
to add some bodies. Uh, what kind of reaction are you getting from the constituents, the oil companies, your colleagues about North Dakota's growing government because population's growing, businesses are coming. There's, there's a lot of activity, which I would think would naturally grow North Dakota. But hearing some of that, you know, that no. we don't like growing in a red state, it, 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 is it inevitable that it is going to grow like this? Well, I don't know that it's, it's inevitable, but it, I think it, it forces you to look at the people you have and make sure that the people you have, you still need in those positions. I'll give you a good example. Our Weights and Measures program, um, there's been, private industry has really come in now and it has the ability to calibrate scales and do those things. Our Weights and Measures program a decade ago was probably 10 people. Well, now we're down to three people, and with the, con with the addition of private service companies out there, we're still the quality control, but we're able to transition those positions into something different. So there's some that you should always look at your positions and make sure they're still needed. I mean, we, we no longer regulate trucking. So we don't need trucking people in the PSC. But to your point, I think that two sessions ago, we, we tested the water on additional pipeline safety and public utilities person, and, and it didn't, wasn't received very well. Well, part of it was I think we probably hadn't made the argument as good as we needed to for safety. And so this time we went in with a, with a better argument and, and better numbers, and we didn't have any problem with it. But one of the things that the legislature did set up, which is uh, I think a really good idea, it was set up a couple sessions ago, is something called filing fees, where if company X wants to build a major transmission line, they have to file a filing fee, which is usually $100,000 or less if it's a small, if it's a big project, it caps out at $100,000. If it's smaller, you can tear it back. Sure. But with that $100,000, what we'll go out and, and basically you contract experts for that case. So you'll get an attorney to be contracted for that case. You'll get a, uh, a uh, land management kind of person to do that. So we've developed a cadre of people that we're working with that'll come in and do special cases for us and then when the case is done then they go back to it so we're able to use those siting dollars to meet the need without growing staff and then the thought process is as these cases slow down you don't have anybody on the payroll so um i don't You're know kind of disseminating the dollars out to the private sector it sounds like we are with our oversight though right. where we still have you know pat fawn is our, our energy guy over there our public utilities chief and he still keeps track of every project. But the example would be every case we have needs an attorney. Well, we have two attorneys in the Public Service Commission. You know, we're not going to go out and hire, well, I don't think it would be a good idea to go out and have 10 full-time attorneys. Sure. So what we do is we keep two full-time PSC attorneys, and then we'll use other attorneys that have expertise in these areas to come help us, making sure they don't have conflicts of interest, of course. Mm -hmm. But um, it's worked pretty well so far. But your point about it being inevitable, um, you know, as you get more pipeline infrastructure in the ground, you're going to need more pipeline safety people. So there's some of the government inherent responsibility you don't want to give out to, you can't give out to someone else. So, you know, I, I don't know about inevitable, but it, it seems reasonable that that it probably does grow over time. But There's no right answer to that question, of course. It's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's that chemistry set of ideology of the state, trying to figure out the right mix. Well, exactly. And I think that the, if we knew what the end game was, and you talked about Sean Kessel, if, if Sean knew what the population of Dickinson was going to be in 2030, his job would be a lot easier, but he doesn't know. I mean, if we knew the number of pipeline cases that were going to be through us the next 20 years, we could make some really solid decisions. So right now, I think we're doing the best with what, we, what we're having. Um, but really, I don't see a, an end to what's going on right now. I just, 
it's it's all good. I think that the the thing that I sense a lot of is what I call easement fatigue out there, where the landowners are just getting tired of so much going on, and so the you know whether it's a telephone easement for a power line easement or a pipeline easement, um, they're just they're getting weary of it. So companies need to double down and making sure they're doing the absolute best job they can have to keep the landowners happy. Understanding at some point in time, you're, you're not going to have every landowner agree. But I know that when we have our hearings, we don't, uh, the number of easements that a company has, that's not a kind of record decision kind of thing that you base on, you base it on the project. But we always ask the question if, you know, if, if, if the company has 90% of the easements in place, you feel pretty good because there's always that 10% they're going to have to work with. But if you have a company come in and they say, well, we've got 5% of the easements in place, there's probably some underlying issues that we're going to have to get to. And so we don't, you know, the condemnation, taking, we don't do anything like that. That's all a legal court procedure. But it is a question that we ask, and I just sense that it's a little bit different because if you put wind farms in your property, the landowner is directly benefiting. When they deal with the power line going across their property, they don't directly benefit. So there's a different set of variables there. When there's a pipeline, they maybe don't directly benefit, but it's kind of out of sight, out of mind after a while. A lot of tax dollars are placed for the local subdivisions. So each one of these energy types, if you will, has its own set of variables. And I think that's where you, we really have got to stay in tune with the local impact. And, I, and some of the companies are better than that than others. I don't think I want any Dickinson City job right now <laughs> or anything. I mean, because they're, they're projected to build 40,000 in the next five years. And that kind of growth. That's, that's just in the right to, to imagine doubling the size of population in five years. Well, I think that's where the you know people in my position, elected officials, you, you need to do your best with the information you have and don't run away from your decisions. Mm -hmm. If you make a decision based on the information you have, then stick with it. You know, Tell people, listen, pipelines, yep, they're, 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 they're the safest way to move things. We have good emergency response plans in place. If, they, if, the, if, if the landowner gives you a concern, make sure that you understand their concerns. And that's why get, getting people to come to our hearings is the most important thing that they can do because we're in, we have these, um, the Basin Electric Power Line hearings are coming up September 4th, 5th, and 12th. And uh, the 4th is in Tioga, the 5th is in Kildare, and the 12th is in, is in uh, Williston. And there will be a lot of public input in those hearings. But the worst thing that can happen is the day after we, we, we make the decision and let's say we would approve it, you get a bunch of concerns that come in because you haven't had a chance to address those. You want to get those concerns up early. And you know, I think our goal is always to figure out the best way to build these projects because they're not building power lines because they don't need them. They're needed somewhere. You know, so that's where there's, there's underlying need to build this infrastructure. So you know, to say we're, you're not going to prove stuff, um, there have to be some good reasons why. It's trying to find that the, that balance of how to do it. I don't remember if it was Lynn Helms or if it was uh, Ron Ness with the uh, Petroleum Council, uh, Marketers Council, Petroleum Council, Marketers, what is that? Petroleum Marketers Council. Marketers. <laughs> uh, last year they had their meeting on Medora, big right. annual meeting, and when I interviewed him, he reflected back to 20 years ago he said they were lucky to get a guy, a group of guys together to fill a car cable. Sure. Now they're at Avenue Avenue Door and 
there hasn't been an NPR Literacy Center this year because of all the increase from the uh, eastern side of the state. Uh, you came around in 2008-2009. You don't have 20 years, but no. <laughs> you know, just your, your observations and your uh, perceptions of speaking, of going to hearings, just people's views of North Dakota and energy. I mean, if, if we're talking about not even able to fill a card table for a meeting to hold it in a dome, that's a major perception change. How about for your observations? No, I think that's spot on is the... You know, I'm involved in the, you know, the national group of public service commissioners, and when you go to these meetings now, they, they want to know what's going on in North Dakota. They'll, you know, I've had the opportunity to chair some of the panels about energy discussion, about what we're doing in North Dakota. About every week, somebody invites me to speak somewhere. Mm -hmm. And you, know, you have my day job to do so. I stick pretty close to home as much as you can, but it is important to get out there and share what's going on because there's other states that have gone through some of the things we're going through. Uh, I've got a friend in the Texas Commission. I talk to him once in a while and, and bounce ideas back and forth. So I think, you know, the days of North Dakota being the cold state that everybody makes fun of, we're still cold and they might give us a hard time, but they know what we're doing, they, they understand. And uh, I still think there's some folks that think the Black Hills is in North Dakota, but, but we'll deal with that, I guess. It just, I mean, I think it's overall, it's, it's, it's good though. When I think about, you know, growing up here in the 80s when we were all, Graduating high school, nobody really had any opportunities for jobs to stay in the state. Uh, even when I came back here working recruiting, like we were talking before we started, I was out in Alexander, and maybe two guys at the local pub was all there. The town of Arnegard was almost done, and Watford City was on its last leg. I mean, these communities have futures now. Their kids can go to school, so there are issues. But I'll tell you, I would take what we have now to the glide path we were on 10 years ago. Where do you see the blockage in 10, 15? I would hope, let's say 15 years, all right? 15, 20 years, how's that? <laughs> let's say, I guess I would hope that, you know, let's just say 20 years from now, that we have a, a pipeline infrastructure in, pace, in place for oil and natural gas that is able to move 90% of the product underground, and the, the flaring has stopped, we're collecting all the gas, we're using it for heating, we're using it for, for fertilizer, that the impact of trucking is, is, is almost zero because we've developed the infrastructure. I mean, that would be what I would hope that we'd have, that we're, we're still able to farm and ranch out there, that they can graze their cattle and grow their corn, and we can have a good telecommunication industry. But then the towns that are, that are there, that, 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 you know, 20 years ago, there was not going to be a, a Arnegard, North Dakota. The town of Arnegard, the schools are solid. They've got good ability for those kids to, you know, go locally to college if they want, so we can kind of get past the, I call it the construction phase. I could use the analogy of when we would deploy in the military, you'd go to, you know, Desert Storm or even this last time in Iraq, you'd get there and you'd have a big mess. There'd be trucks everywhere and, and about five months into it, they kind of settled down, things were built, and before long you get to a, to a steady state. So maybe we can get to something like that. Okay. Thank Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jason. And that was the North Dakota Public Service Commissioner, Brian Kalk. To listen to the full-length interview, or other Bakken Bio interviews, visit buildingthebakken.com. And that interview was brought to you by The Crude Life. When you want to make money the crude way, contact The Crude Life. Visit their website at www.thecrudelife.com. And that concludes this episode of Bakken Bios. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jason Spies. Jason Spies.